Welcome to our podcast. We are Vintage City Church based out of Fort Collins, Colorado. As a church, we're currently working through the Book of Romans. If you would like to watch the live video from this episode, head over to VintageCityChurch.tv and we hope you enjoy this message. Um, welcome. Um, But we are in Romans. We've been going through the book of Romans and a little context here about Romans. Romans is about many things, but one of the things I think Romans is about is about war. Not the literal kind of war we often think about, but it is about the war inside of us, the war amongst us, and the war that is coming at us. The war inside of us, Paul writes about in Romans, "Do do not let sin reign over your bodies that there is a war that goes on. He says a little later in Romans, he says, I find myself not doing the things I want to do and doing the things I don't want to do. He's writing about that internal war. He also is writing about the war amongst us, that for the first time in human history, the Jews and the Gentiles are worshiping together with no separation. Right, we think it's hard enough for Democrats and Republicans to worship together. Right, here we have a picture from history, the first time in human history that prior to this, God-fearing Gentiles were able to worship in the temple, but in a separate part of the temple. Here in Rome, in the military and cultural center of the globe right now, is a group of people who have never worshipped before. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, he said that worship to this point had always been about separation. This mountain or that mountain, he says, today, From here on out, worship is about spirit and truth. And lastly, it is about the war that is coming at us. We're going to see in Romans chapter 8, the the final eight or nine verses here of how he is writing about the persecution, the oppression, the hardship, the trouble, the risk, the danger that is coming at them because of who they are. You see, church, you you don't need me to tell you that the, the, the letter to the Romans is about these internal war, this war amongst us, this war coming at us, because you wouldn't be here if you weren't in one of those places. See, the scriptures are written to a people who are struggling. The scriptures are written to a group of people who are oppressed. If life is going perfect for you, congratulations, right? But for most of us, most of human history, this letter is written to a group of people. God names his people. He couldn't name them anything. He names them Israel. The word means struggle, So if you come here this morning and you find yourself in a place of struggle and maybe there's a part of your brain or your mind that is saying, wait, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm ashamed that I'm dealing with the struggle. What God's word says is welcome to the story. That to be in struggle is to be a part of his family. And so church, I don't know if the primary struggle you are facing right now is one inside of you or one amongst you and others or perhaps something coming externally at you. But God's word has something to say to you and to me this morning. So we're at the end of Romans chapter 8 verses 31 through 39. We'll have the text up. It says this, what, sh- what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. 
Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, nor the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. So Paul begins this passage and he says, what then shall we say in response to these things? He's first of all calling out to the people, do you have any response to these realities and these truths? See, if we look back at what he has just explained to them in Romans 8, he has said to them that your present sufferings are nothing compared to the glory that is to come. Now you might internally say, yeah, right. You might internally scoff at that, but he is saying this is truth, that your present sufferings are nothing in compared with the glory that is to come. He says also that the creation is groaning. It is longing for freedom that will come, the glory that will come. And in Romans 8, he says that you, you are called according to his purpose. He says, child, what will you say then in response to these things? You and I know that whether we're conscious of it or not, our lives are a response to those truths. That this morning we saw those who stepped into the waters of baptism, they were declaring to us as a church, my life in response to these truths is surrendered to him. And so he is pointing them back to these things and he is saying essentially that our response, uh, the way we live our lives is a response to God's truth, whether we realize it or not. And then into this setting, he asks a series of questions. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He says, who can bring a charge against us? What can separate us from his love? Now, at first, these questions seem rhetorical, right? Just questions asked to emote sort of a response, not a literal answer. But I find myself confused by that because when he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? I find myself saying, Paul, thanks for asking. There are those against me. I am facing oppression. I am facing accusation. And at times I do feel separated. In the original text, that question, when it says, if God is for us, who then can be against us? We sometimes take it as like this. We puff out our chest and we say, yeah. But in the original text, it just says, if God is for us, who is against us? And I think before we take it to, to talk about the victory, which is important, I think we can first address the question literally, church, if God is for you, there is a force against you. See, in Isaiah 54, he will say, 
No weapon formed against me will prosper. We celebrate at that reality that the weapon won't prosper, but we have to remember the pretext is there is a weapon formed against you. In Ephesians 6, he will say, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. See, we, we celebrate the fact of that we, we, the perspective given about what we wrestle against, but we have to absorb the pretext, which is you are wrestling, you are struggling. There is a weapon formed against you. There is a force against you. And I love the reality of the scriptures that it is not trying to simply get you in the door with a relationship with Jesus and then suddenly bring you all the bad news about it. It's not like Jesus is like, come along, this is great. Then, oh, don't forget to scan the QR code on the way out. And that gives you all the text of like, oh, you're gonna face opposition and persecution and all these things. Jesus addresses it with his disciples right up front. He says in John 16, in this world, you will have trouble. And so there is this reminder for us that there is opposition. There are weapons formed against us. There is a struggle and a wrestling that happens. And here is the main point of this text in Romans 8. Paul is not minimizing the opposition from the enemy. He is magnifying the love for you from God. So this morning, what I do not want you to take from this passage is that the struggles you are facing, the opposition you are feeling, the persecution you are experiencing are nothing. They are not minimized. It is simply that the love of God is magnified. And what he is saying is that you have signed up for this relationship with Jesus. This is not about making life all easy and rose-tinted glasses and all that stuff, right? This is not about, hey, I bought the Mega Millions ticket and uh, life is all good now and stuck. Congratulations if that was you, by the way. Um, we do have a fit and finish campaign. Uh, <laughs> we would love to just pray about, just think about. Um, <laughs> no, but... We, we see this. Okay, Paul reminds us this against that perspective. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? What he is reminding us, church, is this reality. And we may not like this. This may feel like a bitter pill to swallow, but it is true, is that whatever circumstance you find yourself in today, whatever struggle you and I find ourselves in today, we have been shown kindness from heaven that it says, he who did not spare his own son, how will he not graciously give us all things? Now to understand the context of what it means that he will graciously give us all things, I think we have to first pause and linger with the first giving, which was he who did not spare his own son. He gave them a gift they did not want. He gave them a gift they didn't realize they needed. See, when Jesus came, they wanted someone to conquer the Romans and Jesus came to conquer their sin. They were so focused on the war out there, they missed the challenge of the war in here. And so there is this reality in Romans when it says, how will he not graciously give us all things just like he gave us, he did not spare his son. Church, in a relationship with Jesus, we may not always be given what we want, but we will be given what we need. And in this um, reality, the people, as we said, were looking for a king to conquer the Romans and he came as a lamb slain to conquer their sin. 
See, you and I might have thought if we were in the church in Rome in this uh, cultural and military center of the globe back then, and we get a letter from Paul, we might have thought, okay, this is going to be some cheat sheet about how we overthrow the Romans. And we're going to start reading it like we're reading the Da Vinci Code to be like, yeah, yeah, he's talking about my sin and all that sort of lust and all, yeah, yeah, but there must be something here. There's some sort of, oh, wait, no, hey, um, he's talking about reality. The first and foremost, he is not speaking to them about how to free the weight and the foot of the Romans. He is talking to them about how to flee from the power of sin. That he who did not spare his son, how will he not graciously give us all things? Just like he gave the son who is needed, so he gives to us what we need to deal with the oppression and the persecution and the struggle that we find ourselves in. We know that because he goes on in the next verse to say that Jesus Christ who died is also at the right hand of God interceding for us. See, you and I wouldn't have asked for an intercessor An intercessor is somebody who stands on your behalf. In verse 26, just a few verses earlier, it says the spirit intercedes for you. And here in verse 34, it says Jesus, the son of God intercedes for you. So let's just be really clear with our circumstance here. If I'm telling you the spirit of God is interceding for you and the son of God is interceding for you, it's a signal, a clue at least that you might need some help, right? God is not looking for jobs to do. And yet he dedicates his time to interceding for you. Now, you and I can um, wrestle with, hey, what is he interceding for me about? What is he saying? I'm currently looking for my next job. And so my, my longing, if, if Jesus, if you're looking for any ideas, my prayer might be for him to intercede something like this. It typically sounds monotone because it's sort of like a 16th century monk or something like that. But it would be, um, Father God, we pray that Jesus, that David, not Jesus, that we pray that David would find a job in the top 20% of all income earners, that he would be able to hedge against inflation and the rising costs at the pump, um, and that if he has to travel, it would be the states that are by the ocean or something like that. That would be, if he's looking for ideas, I have some, right? You probably feel the same way too. Hey, Jesus, if you're interceding for me, I have some things that I would love you to intercede for me about. But in John 17, the night of his betrayal, the night before he is crucified, Jesus bows alone in the garden and prays to his father about you and me. And he is in that moment interceding for us. And I think what he prayed then is likely very similar to what he's praying today. What he prays in John 17 is this, Father, protect them by the power of your name. May they have the full measure of my joy within them. The world has hated them because they are not of this world just like I am not of this world. Protect them from the evil one. Sanctify them by the truth. May they know they are sent into the world. I pray that they may be one and that they may be in us. I in them, you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. So there's a lot that he appears to not be interceding about. There isn't a lot of talk in there about wealth, There isn't a lot of talk in there about just 
um, security in the typical way we think about that. He is acknowledging before his father, the world has hated them because they hated me. And that's why this symbol here of going down into baptism is not just about getting, you know, freshened up on a hot day, right? It's about saying, I want to be identified with the one who was rejected. This is a radical message. To follow Jesus is not to escape the troubles of the world. It is to walk through the troubles of the world side by side with him. It is to surrender your life before and say, I cannot navigate these challenges without the spirit of God and the son of God interceding for me. That the war inside of me, the war amongst us, the war coming at us feels so great that the only thing that, I can, that can help me stand against that is the love of Christ. And so Paul goes on and he writes about the things that try to separate us. Again, it, Jesus says in John 16, we said it, in this world you will have trouble, right? In Romans 8, Paul points back to, he talks about the trouble and the hardship and the persecution and the dagger and the sword and all those things. And he points back to Psalm 44 written many, many years earlier. He talks about that um, you are like sheep to be slaughtered. Death is chasing you all day long. Why is he pointing back to that? Because he's showing to them, hey, this has always been the message. This is not some bait and switch thing where he gets you in the door and then suddenly says, by the way, this might get a little messy sometimes. He's saying through all of human history, he's saying, listen, if you're going to be partnered with God, that does not mean you get to escape these hardships and these struggles. But what he is saying is that those things, again, he is not minimizing the opposition, but he is magnifying the love of God. He speaks about these things that we write, that we see in Romans 8 that Paul has experienced personally, that you have experienced personally, and that the church in Rome was experiencing personally. He writes about trouble. In the original, he, does, he uses this word that talks about internal tribulation. So when he begins, he talks about that feeling internally, not externally, internally, when you feel like there is no way of escape. It's like Paul is beginning inside out. He's beginning with the struggles and the challenges that you and I face do not always begin out there. Often they begin in here when we feel like there is no way for us to escape. He talks about hardship, this narrow space of great distress and anguish, persecution when you're being hunted down like an animal and famine and nakedness and danger and sword. The word sword specifically refers to this like dagger-like thing, this short blade, which means what? Which means that you are being wounded by somebody close to you. And so against all these things, Paul is saying, these things are all real. He is speaking of the victory of the fact that these things do not separate you from the love of God, but he is also emphasizing this reality is that the love of God does not, in a sense, separate you from these things. That you still experience these things. And church, it's important for us, I think, to absorb that reality because sometimes we can experience these hardships and troubles and all these things and we can think it's because of some sin we committed or some brokenness or some abandonment my God or any of these things and Paul is saying no you will experience these things but none of these things can separate you from the love of God 
He goes on and he says then, no, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In Romans 8, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, back in John 16, remember, Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. He says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. It's the same word when Jesus says, I have overcome, is the same word when Paul says, we are more than conquerors. And so we have to wrestle with what does it mean to be a conqueror? Because for some of us today, we don't feel like a conqueror. We feel like life has conquered us. And we look at the life of Jesus in John 16. He says, take heart. I have overcome the world. I have conquered the world. And then hours later, he's taken falsely accused and crucified. And so we're scratching our heads saying, what does it mean to be a conqueror then? Because in our world, a conqueror means you get to run back with the victory parade and celebrate and spit on your enemies and do all of those things. But again, it means something different in this context. I would suggest this is that in the scriptures or the life of following Jesus, being a conqueror is less about what is against you and is much more about who is for you. That these things are still against you, but that God's love is for you. And what he is saying in this uh, mysterious, miraculous way that we can't always understand, he is saying that love, his love, is the conquering force in the universe. That the cross is the central theme of history. That Jesus is saying that that cross where he was falsely accused, where he was crucified for something he did not do, that from that cross where he said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, that that was the central theme of human history, saying that even against oppression, even against false accusation, even against abandonment and betrayal, even against all of these things, love conquers all. And so in this Um, In this passage, he is talking about how you cannot be separated from his love. We have to grapple with the fact that so many times we do feel separated. And so again, this, this passage isn't saying that you won't feel separated. It's just saying that you never are separated. Because you and I know the feeling of abandonment. You and I know the feeling of cynical, cynicism. You and I know the feeling just like in Job when all this... Um, calamitous stuff happened to him, this tragedy happened to him and his friends came and said, it must be because you sinned, right? Not helpful, okay? Not helpful. If you have any friends going through, just resist the urge to go there, okay? With With the thing. But the reality is, church, is that we do feel these things. We do feel at times the sense of isolation, Consider how we treat the worst form of punishment for a prisoner, right, is to place them in isolation. And so I don't know, church, if you are feeling isolated and abandoned today. And I don't know if my words will mean much to you, but all I would say is that no matter what you feel, you are not separated from the love of God. I was asking in preparation for this message a few folks who have walk through the shadow of the valley of death who have lost those closest to them. And I asked one of them what it means to not be separated from the love of God. And he shared, and I'll quote, he said, in my deepest suffering, what mattered was not what God could do, but rather all the ways that he and I were together in my deepest sorrow. The closeness of him 
and experiencing the intimacy with him made a difference to me. What Paul is saying in this passage then is that to a group of people who again find themselves in a place of great danger and great isolation and great fear and great loss and all of those things, he is saying that all of these things are real. You experience all of them, but I promise you, I promise you, you are not separated from the love of God. Paul goes on and wraps up this passage and he says, I am convinced. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor height, nor depth, nor anything created on all the earth can separate you from the love of Christ. And so if you have any sort of yeah buts in your story, you're like, yeah, but my sin separates me, my mistakes separate me, my choices separate me, my mindset separates me, all of those things, he is saying you cannot be separated. Paul is saying, I am convinced, I am convicted. So I want to ask you, church, what are you convicted by this morning? See, to be convicted by something is different than to be condemned by something. Condemnation, we are condemned by lies. We are convicted by truth. Condemnation is when we are swallowed up by shame. Conviction is when our hearts are gripped by truth. And the truth that Paul is convicted by here is that even against hardship and persecution and loss and all of these things, love is the central theme and he is convicted by the fact that no matter how we feel, no matter what it looks like to the outsider, we are not separated from the love of God and because of that, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So this morning, I wanna just leave you with the encouragement that I know that the words of a, of a man, the words of a fellow human can sound trite. And so we ask for the voice of the spirit of God to say, I see you, I see the hardship, I see the dagger, I see the struggle, I see the sorrow. And I want you to know, we, we want the, the spirit of God to speak to you and each of us directly and say, child, you are more than a conqueror through him who loved you. And so the invitation of Romans 8 is for us to be saturated in the love of God, to be swallowed up by the love of the cross and to see the central theme of human history, the cross of Jesus Christ as being the conquering force that we will never be separated from. Let's stand together, pray. All right. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the victorious nature of these words. We confess that for many of us in this room, we do not feel victorious. We do not feel like we are conquering. We feel like we have been conquered. And so we ask for those who are hurting this morning to feel the closeness of Jesus, that he would show them his wounds, that he would walk through it together as we know no, Jesus, you do. And Jesus, for your intercession for us today, as you are our high priest interceding for us before the throne, we thank you and we worship you for your words that you plead for us and pray for us, not always for what we want, but always for what we need. We worship you for that in Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you for your time with us. We would love to have you join us at a live gathering on Sunday. Our address is 1501 Academy Court, and it's just off of Prospect Road in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, please go to VintageCityChurch.com, and we'll see you next time.